Good morning. All right, so good to see you this morning. So good to sing together. I did not lose my voice. Maybe some of you did. That was wonderful. All right. We're going to be in Acts 8 this morning. Acts 8. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Uh, Let's turn there together. We're continuing our study of the book of Acts, this great story of the beginning of God's church and all that he did through the resurrected Lord Jesus. And so we're going to be in Acts 8, verses 26 through 40, and we're reading a passage that's so uh, needed, helpful, and really appropriate for what we did just a few minutes ago with Paul and these folks. So let me read it for us, and we will dive right in. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this, Like a a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer was silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was, is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. It is good for us. It is good to read it and study it, and it will tell us how to live a life faithful to God today. I want to do a few things uh, with this passage. First, I want to give us a couple of theological reflections, what this passage is communicating to us about who God is and the story that he is writing, not only in Philip's time, but in our time as well. Then I want to just, uh, frankly, I just want to dive into the wonderfulness of this story. Uh, Some of it is lost on us, I think, because of just the cultural context and there are things being communicated to us that would have been very obvious to the initial readers of this text. They're a little bit lost on us, so I just want to sort of unfold it for you so you can see how wonderful it is. And then finally, I want to give you a few practical implications and applications to go home with. But first, let's ask Jesus to teach us from this passage. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you that we get to worship you. Thank you. I just, it's so good to gather together and I can just picture you, resurrected Lord Jesus, receiving our worship. I love to sing, Lord, worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy. And just as Devin said, uh, as it is in heaven, here it is on earth, us exalting and lifting high the name of Jesus. 
who has died for our sins, settled the debt for us through his wounds, through his blood. How marvelous, how wonderful, Lord. Praise you for that. And as we read this passage, will you show us the wonderfulness of Jesus? Lord, our hearts are so prone to get dull and drag down the everyday stuff of life and forget to lift our eyes to the heavenly reality that is playing out right now in front of us if we could only see it. So open our eyes. Help us to see it. Use this passage to do it. And uh, thank you. Thank you for the preciousness of this word. Help us to learn from it together, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the first thing that we must reflect on in this passage is that God himself is making disciples. Uh, you guys may know, and maybe we've tired you out with it at this point, but Parkview Church exists to glorify God through the whole church, forming whole disciples of Jesus. And you might read that or see it, or now you can see it out on a bench on your way, and I don't know if you noticed that. That's pretty cool. Um, but you might be tempted to think, ah, oh, that's what we do. That's what we do. We are, Parkview Church does that, and forget that it is God who makes disciples. And this passage is probably ground zero or close to it for that very fact. Uh, we might be tempted to marvel at Philip and his evangelistic zeal and his faithfulness and miss the fact that it is God himself driving this passage forward. This is not, in the end, a passage about Philip and his faithfulness or a passage about this Ethiopian eunuch and his story. It's a passage about God and what he is doing. An angel of the Lord, verse 26 an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south. Do you notice it says, this is a desert place. It's a deserted place is what that means. There's nothing there. Why is he going there? Just to meet this man. It's the Lord who sends him there. And the spirit said to Philip, verse 29, the spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. In some ways, it's almost like this passage is so unrepeatable because it's so clearly led by the spirit. I, I guess one of the applications would be and should be and will be in, in just a few minutes. If the Spirit says to you, go to Gaza, go to Gaza. <laughs> go to Gaza. If the Spirit says to run alongside a chariot, I, you should do that. Um, that's absolutely. It's so clear from this passage. Look, look at verse 39. They come up out of the water and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, apparently in the same way that Jesus, when uh, it was, people came and tried to stone him or kill him when it wasn't yet his time, he would seem to sort of walk through a crowd uh, without them being able to stop him. Something like that happened with Philip here. It's so clear that God himself is the one who takes the initiative to make disciples of Jesus Christ. If it weren't for God's leadership and initiative and, frankly, words in Philip's ears, Philip never would have met this man, never been, would have been on the road at that time, and never would have had the opportunity to share about Jesus with him. I mean, think about the coincidence? You can't call it a coincidence. The divine appointment that had to happen for the intersection of these two lives to happen on this road 10 miles outside of town, this deserted place in a parking lot, basically. There's no reason for both of those people to be there at the same time. We marvel at this. We look at this and we go, ah, it's God himself who really led this encounter. And yet from God's point of view, every day is like this in our lives. It is him who is leading us forward, making all these little chance encounters. You run into someone at the grocery store you haven't seen in 20 years, you go, what a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Your coworker says, I was just thinking of that. It wasn't, it's not a coincidence. There are no divine coincidences. There are only divine appointments. And that's, that's one of our convictions. Our core convictions as a church is that it's God himself who makes disciples. God's plan from the beginning 
has been to mend his broken world and everything that we see on the front page of the newspaper all the way down, everything that's gone horribly wrong in our world, God's plan is to mend it by gathering a people, a redeemed people around his resurrected son, Jesus, and it is he himself who is doing it. God makes disciples. In this case, uh, you know, we, we never quite know what God is going to do with our faithfulness, what he is going to produce with our obedience to Christ, um, but it never produces nothing. In this case, through Philip's faithfulness, God sent this eunuch back to Ethiopia, and for the first time in history, the gospel went to people who did not belong to the Jewish nation, and this eunuch, who doesn't even get a name in the story, I don't know if you notice, he essentially becomes God's first global missions worker, going back uh, across to a different continent to proclaim Jesus to a people who had not yet known him. This eunuch is unique in that uh, he's a foreigner. He's, he's sort of the last person that you would expect to be in Jerusalem. He's a foreigner. He was a dark-skinned man. He looked different. He dressed different. He was, he was not what you expected, but God had a heart for him, and he was going to move heaven and earth to make sure that he heard about Jesus. The good news is that God has not left us alone to do this work. In fact, God has been preparing for your mission for millions and millions of years, generations and generations in either line, for you to be in your exact place, doing your exact job, doing, living your exact life with your exact friends and coworkers. We look at that intersection with Philip and this union and we go, what a miracle that that happened. Uh, it's no miracle to God. In fact, he's working everyday miracles in our midst every single day. And he has divine coincidences, more like divine appointments, for you to walk into this very week. I remember a couple weeks ago, uh, the weather, I don't know if you remember, uh, it was warm. Uh, it was quite warm. Today we might have forgotten. Uh, but uh, it, it was so warm, we, you know, we have a little, little boy, Silas, he's just one, and he's still a little stroller guy. And so we said we need to get, we'd seen someone who had one of these little fans, it clips onto the stroller, said this is great, we'll keep him cool in there, we can go on walks, it'll be great. And uh, this package came in the mail, and I, I looked at it, and I don't know why, but for some reason, I just as I was reflecting, reflecting on this, I just was kind of amazed at what it took for this thing to get in the mail and to my house. Uh, I, I was thinking of this thing getting manufactured, this little dinky fan getting manufactured with materials from all over the world, uh, with plastic that's probably made from oil from the Middle East and with a battery that is lithium from Slovakia, or I don't know where, uh, and thousands of miles away, all converging and then getting assembled. I looked and it was assembled in China. And I used an app uh, with millions of products on it, Amazon, you know, uh, to, to, to find this. I, I searched stroller fan, and it knew exactly what I meant. And it had, it had the top 150 results for me to figure out what I want, you know. I paid using a credit card, you know, so I didn't have to, I didn't have to find someone and give them money. I, all of the systems that sort of converged to make this happen, not to mention this thing actually getting into a box. I actually looked. It was in South Carolina. Someone took it, put it in a box, put the box, sealed it, put the label on it, got it. It went in this truck, it went in that truck, it finally got to Cedar Rapids, it finally came to Iowa City and sat in a warehouse. Now, I don't know if you guys know, maybe some, I know some of you actually who work there at the, the Last Mile facility, this Amazon facility over on the east side of town. Um, you see these Amazon trucks sort of whizzing all over town, stopping by your house and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's called the Last Mile facility because the idea is that every other step of the journey, you know, from it's been built, it's been, there's an app, there's, you know, thousands of people working to get this thing 
all the way to a mile from your house. And the last step that's necessary is for someone to pop into a truck and get it to my actual house. Um, and so it's the last mile. And yet, as probably some of you are aware, this is the very step where it seems like sometimes some things break down a little bit. <laughs> um, it, it might get sort of forgotten on the truck for a day or two. That's happened to me. Uh, the other week, it was one of those rainy days, and my package was sitting just barely outside of where the roof covers. Got a little wet, you know what I mean? And so, so often, in our Christian life, we know God has entrusted us with the good news of Jesus. He has, so as it were, given us this package, and it has our neighbor's and our coworker's name on it. He wants us to faithfully deliver it. And we think, in our minds, if you're anything like me, that God is asking us to go the extra mile by telling others about Christ, uh, patiently and prayerfully over time. But in fact, God has already gone 99.9% .9 of the distance. He has orchestrated our lives. He has, he has, of course, sent his son. He has, from eternity past, put these plans together so that we can do not the extra mile, but go the last mile. God has put the package in our hands. There it is. There's our neighbor. Can we get it to him? God himself, Parkview Church, is making disciples. Will we join him in it? Will we take it the last mile? Will we take it across the street? Will we take it, will we join him? And so that's, that, that must be one of our first reflections. First of all, we have to see God himself is making disciples. And especially, God is drawing in people who are the least likely. And particularly in the book of Acts, people from different nations, people who do not look like the Jewish nation, people who don't look like us, people who look like us and, and others just, just weren't on the scene, who like me. Uh, but God is making disciples. Will we join him? Uh, second, I want to just dive into this eunuch story. There are things that we probably miss. There are things we may not see because we weren't living in that time. So let's just take a peek. Luke, who wrote this book, gave us just a quick... I don't know, 10 words about this man. And in doing so, he unfolds an enormous story that for the people who were reading it would have made total sense immediately. But let me just unpack for you. There was an Ethiopian. Look, look with me in verse 27. He rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian. An Ethiopian. Now, we read that and we instantly think, ah, Ethiopia. I know where that is. Uh, but actually, this wasn't modern Ethiopia. It was the kingdom of Nubia. Um, Ethiopia became a different place over time. Uh, Nubia was south of Egypt. If you can kind of imagine, if you're a geography nut, you may be able to imagine that. But let me tell you, it's about 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem. 1,500 miles. That would be from here to Miami, about. In most directions, it would be outside of America. 1,500 miles uh, in the best possible conditions, taking the best possible route to get there, it would take you five months to get from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. Uh, we, drove, we took a little trip to Chicago, went to a Cubs game the other day. Uh, four hours in the car with a couple of kids felt like just forever. <laughs> um, this man was on the road for five months, not with air conditioning, in the Sahara Desert, the hottest and harshest desert in the world. Can you imagine eating whatever you could find to sustain yourself through the little towns and in the few and far between as you went through the, the countryside? Can you imagine the thirst and the hunger that he would have endured on this journey? Five months. 
what would it take for you to, to get you to sleep outside in the desert for five months straight? Riding through bumpy and mostly unmaintained paths for 10 or 20 miles a day, miserable. I mean, can you imagine the thirst? <laughs> this man must have been thirsty. This, this kind of journey does not just take guts and perseverance. It takes commitment. If you're going to t- spend five months, 1,500 miles to get through the desert to Jerusalem, you have to be convinced that what's coming on the other side is worth it. This Ethiopian man was convinced that an encounter with God in Jerusalem would quench his spiritual thirst and make those five months on the road all worth it. He is an Ethiopian man coming from far away. He then tells us that he was a a eunuch. Uh, In the ancient world, there were many reasons uh, that a man might undergo castration and become a eunuch, make himself purposefully infertile. But Luke tells us, in fact, right away, and this is one of those things that would have been very clear to the original readers of this passage who heard this story, um, the connection here between the fact that he's a eunuch and then his job title. Uh, He says he was a eunuch, a court official of Candace. Now, Candace is not a a name. It's something like Pharaoh. um, So it's more like king or queen. The the Candace, uh, you might call it. A court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. A reason that he tells us all those sort of specifics of his job title is to explain why he's a eunuch. Uh, As I said, there are many reasons that you might become a eunuch, but uh, if you wanted to work in the royal household and you you were not of noble birth, in, in most cases in the ancient world, you needed to be a eunuch. And there's a very simple reason for that. The simple reason is that they understood that the king and the queen, the royals, so to speak, uh, were divinely appointed, and it was through their blood, through their very bodies, and through who they are as people that royalty came. And that means that if the queen got pregnant, then that baby is a royal. That baby is a prince. That baby is a princess. It doesn't matter uh, who the father is. And so eunuchs were seen as the safe option to work in the royal uh, house. Um, not only because they, well, he couldn't you know, impregnate the queen, but also because uh, without in-laws and without children to think of after him, they were seen as being safe. Uh, they weren't trying to build their own dynasty because it was impossible. And so, I, I probably don't need to say this, but becoming a eunuch was quite painful. <laughs> you, uh, you did not do this unless you had a compelling reason to undergo this dangerous, painful procedure why would you do this? Not, and of course, it wasn't just painful physically. It was painful emotionally. It was painful socially. You were giving up a life. You were giving up. You know, keep in mind, at that time, there's no social safety net to catch you. If you go bankrupt, the crops don't come up, whatever, you know, if life goes bad or you get sick, or you need your family. You need your family to take care of you. They are your safety net. They're, when you get old, that's who's going to take care of you. And so to give up, what, why would you give up all of that all the things that you're going to need in your future, well, it's clear. He's, you can see in the way he describes uh, his job. He's a, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and he was in charge of all her treasure. This man became a eunuch so that he could get access into the halls of power. He traded his future for a comfortable, safe, and wealthy life, even though it meant he was mortgaging off his future. 
this Ethiopian man has become essentially sort of the preeminent example of that kind of career path, losing and giving away your future so that he basically became the CFO of Nubia. And all he had to do to get to the top of the corporate ladder, so to speak, was give up his family and his future. It sounds a little bit like a familiar story, doesn't it? A 1,500-mile journey does not... It's, it's a commitment, but it sounds more like desperation. Desperation. His chariot, his long journey... I mean, everything about this story communicates to us that this is a very wealthy man. Why would he give up all of that to take this 1,500-mile journey? Why? Because he thought that meeting God would solve his problem. Well, he's right. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. This is the, one of the last things he tells us. The Ethiopian, eunuch, court official, all of that, he's in charge of all our treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And can you imagine the feeling? Five months on the road, 1,500 miles, the bumps and the repairs and the, everything about it. Five months of drudgery, five months of bad meals and sweat and boredom, and all leading to this moment. And can you imagine Jerusalem and its, its beautiful buildings beginning to come into sight right over the horizon of this desperate man? Finally, he would be able to meet God, right? And it's here where Luke's audience would have caught its breath. Because when this desperate man approached the temple in Jerusalem, on the little literal doorstep of his religious hopes and dreams of meeting God and being fixed once and for all, the temple guard would have stopped him immediately and he would have said to him, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 23 says that no man in your condition can come into this house. You'll need to go home. Can you imagine? Five months on the road. Five months on the road to be turned right back around to head home. Can you imagine the embarrassment? This man is used to being in control and, and being in power. He, he runs, he's the CFO. He's in charge. I mean, he already would have attracted a lot of attention. People would have been looking at him. He has, you know, he has dark skin. He's, he's dressed in a foreign way. Of course, he, he's wealthy and he's in his physical condition. He would have felt exposed enough just to be walking up to the temple in the first place, but then to be treated like that, to be turned away. He must have been humiliated. Can you imagine the sense of injustice? Five months I've been on the road. You won't let me in? Can you imagine the inner turmoil and spiritual pain this man must have felt? He has come, he's come to Jerusalem because he is a eunuch. Because of the choice that he made. He, he put his career ahead of everything. And it left him feeling spiritually empty and needy. He's, he's sold off his future. He can't have a family. He can't have those things that he knows he, he's maybe now just realizing, I'm going to need those things. Only to be told at the temple that the, the source of greatest pain in his life is the exact point where he gets turned away from God. Now, a point of just quick and very blunt application there are, new, there are new people coming to Parkview every single week, and we want to give them a place to sit 
and we want to take care of their kids. Rhonda is going to come up here. Well, actually, she's working right now because we need more volunteers. We need people to make sure that when people come to our door that they don't have an experience anything like this man is experiencing. So grab one of these and fill it out, won't you? Back to the story. Despite this rejection, despite that moment of rejection, five months on the road only to be turned away, he has the chariot turned around and he starts to turn back home and he hasn't given up hope. He's still reading the Bible. He's still reading the prophet of Isaiah, even though we find out he can't even understand what he's reading. He's still eager to learn about this God that he can't even approach. He doesn't get too far down the road before a strange thing happens. There's a man. (laughs) There's a man running. There's a man running, and is it just me, or is he running at the exact same speed as this chariot? (laughs) There's a man shouting up at me. Do you understand what you're reading? Uh, it, It was the custom in that time to read aloud in the ancient world. You would read out loud. You wouldn't read just in your mind as we maybe are used to. And so he invites this man, Philip, up onto his chariot with him, into his chariot, and they open the Bible together, and they begin to study and to read. And the eunuch was curious about this shadowy figure in the prophet Isaiah, this man like a sheep who was led to the slaughter, this sort of innocent man, uh, like a lamb before its shear is silent. He doesn't defend himself, um, even though he's innocent, and he, he doesn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. I'm sure that felt pretty familiar to the eunuch at that moment. Who can describe his generation, that is, his family, those, his offspring? That sounded familiar to this man. For his life was taken away from the earth. He said to Philip, who is this prophet talking about? And beginning with that very word, with that very word, not just that, but that entire section of the book of Isaiah, he began to explain to him the significance of Jesus and what it meant for his life. Now, it wouldn't have been long before they got to Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. And it says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The Lord said to this man, Do not say, I'm just a dry tree, just a fruitless plant, just a husk of a man, nothing left. I will give where? In my house. In my house. (laughs) Do you see the significance? The eunuch will come into my house, within my walls, in my house, a name that will not be cut off. The eunuch traveled 1,500 miles to get to God in the temple, only to get found by God 10 miles outside of town. And this man is astounded by the God he encounters and apparently gives his life to Jesus on the spot because he saw that Jesus was offering him what he never could have found anywhere else and what the temple itself could not offer. Jesus was the answer to all of the temple's insufficiencies and the way that people were meant to come to God in that era had come to an end because through Jesus, God was fixing everything. That people didn't need to go to a place. In fact, the Ethiopian man is really, he's the image of everything that didn't work under the old system, under the, old te- the way it worked in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. 
In fact, early church historians will tell us that this eunuch, he brought the gospel home with him to Africa, uh, which in ancient times was known as the ends of the earth. You may think of Acts 1.8, when God says to the, apostles, to the uh, disciples, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This story is certainly telling us all about that, that God has a heart for those who are far from him, not only spiritually, but literally, physically. God, God wants to send people to hear about the word of Jesus all over his world. This is how the promises of gospel in the Old and New Testament will finally become true, that in the age of the Spirit, Jesus is accessible to anyone, anywhere, where the gospel is proclaimed and people believe. And as they're going, as it seems as soon as the thought comes to his mind, he says, perhaps I should be baptized, and none of us are surprised, but there's some water in the middle of the desert. How'd that get there? Apparently God has been at work, and he's baptized. Now church, hear this, first of all, what an amazing story. What an incredible story. Uh, when you understand exactly what has happened here in this man and his turmoil and his rejection, let me tell you, there are people who feel 1,500 miles away from God here in our city, and they need Christ. Now, this passage also, we must say, has, gives us some solid principles for personal evangelism. How will we take part in what Philip gives us an example of all those many, many years ago. Now, uh, it's interesting that in the book of Acts, up until this point, evangelism has always happened sort of in a crowd. Uh, it's been, one of the apostles stands up and says stuff, and then uh, people come to faith, and that's wonderful. Uh, but this example is the first time that we see uh, an individual talking to an individual about Jesus, and that's wonderful. So I want to point out, let's see, how many things do I have? One, two, three, four. Four principles for personal evangelism. If you love taking notes, this is going to be great for you. This is going to be a highlight of the day for you. Okay, submit to the Spirit. First, we must submit to the Spirit. Like I said before, if God tells you to walk to Gaza, do it. Walk to Gaza. I, great. Now, I know it's, it's hard, you know, when you say, well, is all this repeatable? I don't know, maybe not everything, but the principle is sound. Submit to the Spirit. Um, Philip didn't just share when God sort of gave him a specific situation. We saw at the end of the passage, as I flip there, uh, verse 40, Philip found himself at Azotus, and the Spirit didn't say, now preach the gospel in all the villages as you go home. He had already heard the Spirit speak through the scriptures and through the prophets that knew that this was his role. This was his job, was to, to submit to the Spirit by not only in specific situations where an audible voice apparently was heard, um, but in every situation as he went. Um, and so Philip does that. He submits himself to God's will, and we can do the same thing today. Evangelism is one of God's good gifts to us. You think about that example I gave before, sort of the Amazon package. God gets it 99% of the way, way there, and then he sort of trusts us with the last mile. I hope that's exciting to you. Is that? I hope, I hope so, to think that I've got something with my neighbor's name written on it, with my, whoever it is that God has laid on your heart, and it's my responsibility to have people in mind and, and to be open to God's leading and look for opportunities. Um, it's one of God's gifts to us, to involve us in that process. So let's embrace it. So submit to the Spirit. Secondly, ask questions. Ask questions. Uh, wouldn't it have been only natural, I, I think if it were me, to, for Philip to climb up in the chariot and immediately say, hey, stop the chariot. Uh, the Holy Spirit told me to come up in your chariot. So I'm just going to tell you about Jesus now because clearly that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, it, it, it was so clear, the leading, right? Now, a major misconception is that being good at evangelism means that you're good at talking good at saying things, good at 
talking and saying things just the right way. I often hear, when I talk with people about this, they say, well, I'm worried I'll say the wrong thing or I, I won't know what to say. And I say, who said evangelism is all about saying? So the best evangelists, in my experience, are people who are great at listening. They're great at asking the right questions. They're great at knowing and understanding the people around them. Do you know how unusual it is in our age of social media and self-expression and all of that to have someone listen to you? Not listening as they think of the answer to the next thing that they're going to say, but to actually sit and listen? You feel honored. You feel important. You feel known. Influence will come to us when people understand that we want to understand them. Uh, I've heard it said, you know, no one cares what you know until they know that you care. Uh, Philip gives us that great example. He says, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? He invites them up. Uh, they read the passage together, and the eunuch is the one who actually asks the first question. The best evangelists, like I said, aren't necessarily the ones with all the right answers, but the ones with the right questions. And it indicates to that person, I care about you. I'm a spiritual person. I care about you, and I'm available to you. Third, in, let them invite you in. Let them invite you in. Philip's question, do you understand what you're reading, that's what actually sort of earns him a seat on the bus, a seat on the chariot. He is invited in. We should let people do the same thing. That's how we honor them and respect them. If the Spirit is at work, you will not feel like I am barging in, I am interrupting, and I'm being basically rude. <laughs> uh, let people invite you in. It's not often, at least in my experience, you talk with someone, although it's not unheard of at all, um, you, you meet someone, and what they want to know from you is, hey, Will you explain the Bible to me? That's what happens with Philip. <laughs> uh, but here's how people in indicate to you that they're interested and available and that you're not barging in, but you're letting them invite you in. They'll share a point of pain in their life. You know how it goes. You know, you're talking in the office or you're talking on the street. Will you talk about the weather, your car? Hey, when are you going to wash my car? Ha, 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 ha. You know how it goes. Uh, it's a classic joke. I highly recommend it. Uh, but... You, you can understand, you can sense. If you're listening, if you're letting the Spirit lead, when someone is sharing more than they really need to and more than is really sort of normal in that situation, they're giving you a gateway. They're inviting you to come in. They, they'll ask you about yourself, sort of beyond the normal chit-chat. They're open. And if you're listening, you'll hear them invite you in. So be sensitive, be a good friend, and, and be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. And lastly, we need to know our Bibles. Oh, yes, we must know our Bibles. Um... We see that with Philip. Uh, Philip opens his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, that is from Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture, beginning with that scripture, and going on to show who, who is the shadowy man in Isaiah, and what does it mean? Do you understand the people around you well enough to know, not just sort of the general message of God on their life, but... As this, the man uh, on the road down to Gaza, what aspect of Christ's character and work will be most compelling and impactful to them? We, of course, that means you've got to be asking good questions. You've got to be listening. You've got to be so at the point where it is your turn to talk, and you have been invited in, and you you do get to share, that you can share what about Jesus is so so compelling. Um, 
you know, we, we, we can marvel at that quote from Isaiah 56. I will give in my house, in my walls, a name better than sons and daughters. And we think, wow, isn't that the word, just the word that that eunuch needed at that moment? Well, there are words like that that God has put in his holy book for your friends and neighbors, for you, so that you can see how marvelous Jesus is and tell everyone else about it. And so that when you encounter them and their particular intricacies and the pains that they have, that you can point them to the God who is every bit as wonderful as he says he is. Uh, one of the main points of feedback, I remember, uh, as we had Sam Alberry come and visit here just, I guess it was about a month ago. You know, what I heard about Sam's visit, unfortunately I missed. So upset with myself. But uh, Sam's visit was not primarily that Sam had just a masterful understanding of the Bible, although he did. He was, he was, it was wonderful. It was not necessarily about his sort of uh, academic acumen and his, how smart he was or anything like that, although he was. It was, it was just so abundantly clear, and this is what I heard from so many people, that Sam simply, he knew Jesus. He knew him deeply. He knew him intimately. Sam rejoiced in Jesus, and it seemed that about every answer had to do with the wonderfulness of Christ. Parkview, if we let everything else pass away, and, and there's only one thing that we absorb from this, and we absorb anything, is that our reputation for our community group, for our church, for your life, would be, that person really knows Jesus. That's how things like what happened in Acts 8 happen all over the place. So let's follow God. Let's go the last mile in evangelism, and let's follow our great captain into the breach as he calls us forward to share the good news of Jesus with our friends. Now, Jesus is eager to do this with us, and he gives us communion to enjoy a meal with him and to remember all that he has done the way that we have access into this kind of friendship with God. So, if you don't have one of these little things, uh, Michael Height is right there in the back, and if you raise your hand, he will deliver one to you. The Apostle Paul taught the church how to do this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this bread together. And then the same way also we took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take this drink together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you that we can come and worship you and learn from your word, your desire for us and our world. We pray that you would fill us with the joy that that eunuch had of knowing Christ, of knowing his particular significance to our lives, what he has done, what he has gone through so that we can, he identified with us so that we can identify with him. Fill us with that kind of joy and help us to be faithful to all that you've called us to be. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.